Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. All right. Thanks for joining me for another podcast of Isaac's Autism in the Wild. Today, I have my friend, Becky Gardner. Her practice is a life of my own. What's that? Oh, I just said hello. Hello. Um, So her (laughs) practice is a life of my own. She's joined me. She's kind of, you are my executive function guru that I go to. And I like to, everybody knows I'm really nerding out on topics related to executive function because as my older, I see more and more um, evidence of executive function challenges, not just in our special needs kiddos, but also our neurotypical. um, That's right. Yeah. So we've talked, we've had multiple podcasts, but today we're talking about masking from bullying and the continual effects of trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. Talk about the story of my life, right? Um, (laughs) One of my biggest frustrations all along with just doing the work that we do at the Isaac Foundation is, is that you know, as a community, as a society, it's always that pressure and the feeling that parents have that we have to try and get our children who are square pegs shoved into these round holes that are created by systems like schools and work, employment, all those different things. And so um, bullying is also something that our special needs community is well aware of. We've dealt with it for eons. uh, And and so today we're going to talk about the effects of this of bullying. Uh, I'd love to talk about, you know, what does the masking, and maybe that's where we start. Uh, I mentioned when we started that I love podcasting on topics I know very little about because then I get smarter about it and I'm more informed. So this is going to be really fun for me today. Um, so let's first talk about masking from bullying and what we would be looking at or looking for so that we would know um, that there's a concern. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the typical course, um, that I see play out with my own children with autism and, um, students that I work with is that they start out as energetic little humans, um, lots of spark and energy And they just over time get worn down from societal pressures, from those constant corrections that we have talked about, that they get thousands of more corrections than their peers because their uh, behavior tends to be outside the norm. And then that also sparked or maybe that's kind of strongly worded but uh bullying happens from peers again because behavior is not according to societal norms it's it's not the culture that is in that current location but it's the autistic culture instead that is wired within And all of that leads to, it can be intentional, but a lot of times it's an unintentional hiding of 
who they are and what floats their boat and how they comfort themselves. And pretty soon they end up being person within a person that they show to the outside. And so this is the mask that that happens. I have to say it's almost universally in our society on some level. The child or the student's self-esteem gets impacted, their self-worth, and they don't want to be the person that they are. So they put on this mask and to make themselves feel better, to feel like they fit in. And really, it's a short-term fix for a problem that ends up in the end causing more harm than it does fixing the problem. So that's that's how I see it. It's interesting when you talk about the number of corrections that you know uh, students receive compared to their neurotypical peers. And I think that where that is interesting is that you're right. They absolutely get more corrections than your neuro, their neurotypical peer. And what happens is I don't think that a lot of people or students actively seek out someone to bully. I think what happens is that they just see the student that's getting constant corrections from the teacher. And then that's what creates that open door environment for, oh, this is that person. Because, and that's what I have always told kids is the kids that are doing the bullying, a lot of times they have stuff that's going on at home or they have low self-esteem. There's a lot of things that are going on that um, then when they see a vulnerable student, more vulnerable than themselves, then that's mm-hmm. their outlet for um, for venting. And not that yeah. it's right, but it yeah. ends up being kind of that first, like how the door opens to where bullying begins. Yeah. And I agree. I agree. And it's just the focus off of their, whatever is going on with them to another person. And so, yes, I agree. Really, you know, teachers need to be a bit aware of the fact that when we have to do those constant corrections and then being cognitively aware of how many corrections they are giving to a, you know, special needs student versus a neurotypical student. I think that that is, is really good information. You know, so if you're a teacher listening, I think it's just, you know, again, it's difficult to, you know, change overnight, but it does, you know, at least create an opportunity for just perspective and how some of these bullying behaviors start to manifest. Um, yeah, I agree. Question, one other question that popped into my head as you were talking is that um, I've said for a long time and science is starting to support this and there's more research being dedicated to this particular topic, but I personally believe that the rate of autism in females is actually much higher than it's currently being reported by the CDC. And, oh yeah, and definitely. I believe, and science supports me and my belief that this is because boys and girls are, are different and their brains are wired differently from the time they are born because there's just natural differences in the brain. And so my belief is, you know, we've been, and, and science says this, we have been taking criteria that has been developed and, and, and molded related to boys and trying to use that right. same criteria to then assess females. And that's the reason why they are going undiagnosed for longer because they can, right. mask, they mask much better. Uh, and I can say that personally, you know, I'm a, I'm a woman who growing up and I still do to this day, cause it's not like it magically goes away. Right. Disability. I have dyslexia. They didn't yep. know what it was when I was in elementary school, middle school, high school. And 
my whole life I spent just watching what everybody else was doing and trying to mold my behaviors and do what I thought everybody else doing because again that was my that was my defense mechanism that was the only way that I knew how to survive and get by being different and exactly. uh, having a different learning style. And so that is one of those things where females um, are much better at masking. So they observe what's going on around them and then they start molding their behaviors around what they're seeing of their neurotypical peers. So one, you agree with that, that thought processing is that there actually are more females than what's currently oh, yeah. presented. And then- yeah. Science is- that, like you say, and the criteria for autism that we have has evolved from research on boys because they didn't think the girls had it at all. So all of our criteria for a diagnosis is geared toward boys. So yes, it's it's very skewed. It's very incorrect. Agree. Yeah. yeah. And so then that makes me ask the question is when we're talking about masking from bullying, do you, I, I, it would in my mind make complete sense to see that more females are definitely masters at masking from bullying versus boys. Um, and maybe that's not right. Maybe boys do mask, but it might look a little different. Do you see it being yeah. the same, same or it looks slightly different between girls masking versus boy masking? How do you feel on that? Yeah, I do, I do think both do it. I think uh, girls do tend to be, I don't know what, and I don't know if it's statistically true, if they tend to be more introverted, but you do see, and maybe that's part of the masking that the autistic uh, females that I know are generally pretty quiet and that's how they blend in. And that's a lot of their mask. Whereas male autistics that I know, some of them are, a good portion of them are introverted and that's part of their mask. But there are others that I know that are very social and use a flip side of that, the outgoing um, mask to try to uh, hide this, their differences. So I, I do think girls, females tend to be very skilled at it, but I, I have seen some also highly skilled males. So how does that look in the boys? Like what, when we're talking about masking, I see, you know, and again, I've raised primarily boys. I've only had one little girl and she is neurotypical, but with the boys, the thing about the boys is they get mad, they explode, and then they can move on. Now, Caleb, my boy with autism, will perseverate on like an injustice that he sees that has happened. My neurotypical yes. boys will get mad, be angry, um, and then they kind of move, they move on pretty fast. And whereas Caleb uh, just repeats it over and over in his head. And so it really, for him, it really modifies and changes how he perceives future experiences going to go because he associates then that one experience, that one situation where he was bullied or things didn't go the way he needed them to go. And then he applies that, well, I'm never going to do this activity. Right. He makes a rule. He makes a rule. And Mm -hmm. that is very, very limiting. Um, Is that consistent with what you see or are there other variations? Uh, That's very consistent. And there are other variations. Uh, I think there are 
as many different masks almost as there are people. I mean, we all are creative problem solvers and adapt to the specific situation that we're in at the time that that mask is formed and then we carry it with us. Yeah. Um, yes, but I do see that as a, as a common response that, oh, that was awful and painful and I'm going to make a rule and I'm going to stick with that and my life will be easier. And if nothing ever around it changed if it was exactly the same situation every time your life would be easier but chances are the environment or the setting or the situation of the people are going to be different and what seems like a perfect solution at the time ends up being limiting later oh yeah and that's yeah and that's the frustration i think with you know the autism spectrum disorder when we have these absolutes and we have, you know, we can't make life 100% consistent. And that's one of those challenges, you know, could we make that possible? You know, having real consistencies throughout an entire day, 100% of the time when A happens, B is the result. Oh, wouldn't that be delightful for just <laughs> our, our special needs population, but just for control free. Exactly. I love to control exactly. my environment and things in my world as much as possible. And man, wouldn't that be like a hoop? Yeah, but that's really not. Exactly. Well, and then imagine that you have all of the sensory stuff on top of that. I mean, if you could control your, all of that, life would be so good. But unfortunately. So let's talk about then how this segues into the long-term effects of continually trying to fit the square peg into that round hole. Yeah. I'm going to say the word anxiety. I mean, I feel like, um, boy, just listening, just saying that sentence just creates a little bit of internal anxiety in me because when you're having that continual pressure, and I think it's both from the student, but also from the parent, that pressure as a parent of trying to help your your square peg fit into those round holes, um, or even trying to chisel away some of these round holes um, so that we can be more inclusive of our population. But then of course, you know, as the student, the pressure and the self-esteem issues that result from that. So can you talk to, talk to us about that? Yes, actually. Um, I am very um, interested in talking about the longer term effects. So I've seen, this is purely uh, my observation and I don't think you'll find any literature out there. So I will give that disclaimer up front. But what I tend to see or the way I make sense of it all in my head is that if this starts at a very young age, meaning um, like the, the bullying or the, the feeling of bullying or the feeling. Um, so autistics tend to be incredibly sensitive, incredibly empathic, incredibly aware and whether or not people outside realize how sensitive and aware they are is not, a lot of times it's, uh, they don't give signs necessarily that how sensitive they are or how um, affected they are by different things. But every autistic that I know, is incredibly empathic and sensitive. And so they feel things very deeply that as an outsider, you might not even be aware that they, that it even registered. But um, so 
if they're feeling this pressure at a very young age and they're constantly corrected and being who they are is disallowed, you know, being who they are to their core, you know, don't rock, don't make noise, don't uh, comfort yourself in a way that is comforting for you, do these other things. If that starts at a young age or is felt at a young age, I think it pretty typically the outcome will be a learned helplessness. So the child has the feeling that they truly don't know, that they truly are wrong in their instincts or their thoughts or their behaviors. And so they learn to that their beliefs or reactions are wrong. And so at that point, when everything you think or think you know or whatever is wrong, then you become helpless. You have to have someone tell you how to do things always because that becomes a core belief that you you're not going to know. And so you have to be helped. And so thus learned helplessness by definition. Yeah. So it sounds like the situation can create itself, not just in school, um, but at home. It sounds like parents, we really are the ones that are the gatekeeper on this from a very early time. And this is something that we parents need to be more cognitively aware of uh, so that we're not teaching them learned helplessness. And then also we need to be aware of this even in the school environment, because very much at school, um, I feel as though in the school environment, it's really, hey, this is the way it happens. This is the way our classroom functions. And they have to then be able to operate within that classroom. Or we have to find a different placement for them that's, quote unquote, more appropriate for their their needs, you know. And so that's where, again, too, it's those, you know, you, you get some great years where you have some teachers that are very open and even outside of the box thinking in terms of helping them to be able to problem solve independently and being open to how their self-regulation looks because they're, that's the other thing too, is not all teachers love some of the natural and helpful self-regulation tools yeah. that the kids need to be successful. Right. Um, but then right. some really cruddy years. Like I've had some really awesome years where it was just like, oh my gosh, like if only every teacher was this right. and, and wonderful, flexible seating and different strategies like that to uh, the classrooms that are more rigid and it's the mindset of well if I allow this student to do this then I'm going to have five or six other students that are going to require that as well and it's very disruptive or whatever 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 and so that's even in the classroom then we start seeing some of that where it's the fitting in the the round oh yeah which is is a lot of those expectations of here's how we want you to handle the situation as opposed to letting them use some of their strategies to figure it out. Absolutely. hundred percent true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those, those corrections are across the board and, you know, it's, we don't have little cameras that follow our students from home to school to back home and know that, you know, if they had a bad morning, that happens. We all have bad mornings and, you know, it's, so maybe there were more corrections at home that morning because you have to get out the door or whatever it is and then go to school, but the teacher doesn't know what's happened at home. And so then things start to go sideways. So there are more corrections that day. And, you know, it, it just, it builds. And um, 
I think you're absolutely right. It happens in all environments and no one environment is aware necessarily of what has happened in the other. And can't, so they, they don't necessarily make allowances. They feel it's their job to help the child move forward with whatever. And so I think, you know, it's, it's not malicious. It's not mal, it's not ill intended, but the effect on the child is the same. And so when we talk about some of those long-term effects, what types of long-term effects are we talking about? I threw out the word anxiety because again, I, you know, such a anxiety is such, is so debilitating and it's, yeah. it's so hard to overcome. You really have to work on a variety of strategies, even throughout your life. Um, what once worked to help with anxiety for a younger kid changes over time and there's oh, sure. manage anxiety changes. So what other things are we looking for that just would be long-term effects of that constant pressure bullying and then that constant pressure of fitting into a hole, not their shape. Right, right. Well, you hit the nail on the head. It's all of that leads to anxiety and that over time will build because uh, like we talked about the mask that fit or the short-term solution that worked early on becomes ill-fitting and then only adds to the problem. It erodes, continues to erode their self-esteem. If, they, if they've really, you know, a lot of people don't know that they are doing this and they're just trying to tread water in our culture. And the underlying anxiety builds whether or not they're aware of their masking and becomes at some point debilitating to where it comes to a head and something has to be done. It's you, this, this is not a long-term solution that works ever that I have seen. And in some, a lot of cases, masking can be effective enough that it can carry people through their school years, even through their twenties, um, sometimes through their thirties, but at some point there is a looming crisis. The best term that I have seen for that is autistic burnout. Um, And I don't know if that's something that you've talked about before. I have, um, it's hard to find good resources on it. I've never seen, I don't think anything scholarly on it, but I haven't run a search lately, but I can tell you the adult autistic community talks about it a lot and it's, it's known, it's accepted. It's a given, um, it's not a question. They're not waiting for um, research to be done. It's it's a very real thing. And actually, I have the, a description that I thought was really, really well done by an autistic adult blogger um, named Re. I think is how you say it. It's R-H-I is their whole name. And if it's okay, I'd just like to read this description. Okay, so she writes, um, and this is from a blog post from July 17th, 19. I can give you the link. This is about, I don't know, a third of it. But she writes, and if I told you that tomorrow you must pretend to be someone else, pretend to be Bob. I'm going to give you a portfolio about Bob, his likes and dislikes. They won't match yours. The things he likes to talk about, his favorite phrases, his accent. I want you to research Bob, memorize it all. And then I want you to pretend to be Bob forever. I want you to be Bob in every interaction you ever have from now on. 
well done, you are Bob. You have now constructed a mask. None of being Bob will feel natural to you, but as time passes, it will get easier to be Bob. You will feel frustrated by always having to reach for your research during interactions instead of reaching for your natural answers, but that's not important. You are Bob now. Bob is the only hope you have of being part of the world. At the end of each day, you will find yourself exhausted. It won't just be the concentration needed to move and behave like Bob, but it will also be the tension in your muscles from holding yourself how you think Bob should hold himself. It will be the tiredness of found in the anxiety of getting things wrong. You will get things wrong. Your version of Bob will need constant revision and improvement. The exhaustion of autism is my biggest difficulty. It's not inherent in the autism itself. It's built out of how the world works. I know this because when I'm at home in my routine and structure, in my safety and joy, I do not suffer with that soul-sapping tiredness. It takes time for me. It takes recovery time that I don't want to give. It means I have to plan to rest after events while watching other people jump from one thing to the next. It means I struggle to attend every task at a conference, no matter how interested I am. It means I have to take a break when I desperately want to keep going. It's the thing that makes me want to say it's not fair because it's not fair. So many unnecessary things steal my energy. Someone not letting me know about a last minute change. Things not happening when they were due to happen. People not saying what they actually mean and assuming I can work it out. So many avoidable things steal my energy. None of them malicious or intentional, but the result is the same regardless. Then she goes on to talk about more personal things, but that to me says it so clearly. All of the different pieces and how that can really affect an autistic from the time that they are young and this builds and this is the result of this extreme exhaustion to the point that they just have to check out for a while and recoup and figure out oh I've been Bob and Bob is not healthy for me even though the world wants me to be Bob I'm not going to be able to be Bob nor is it good for me yeah, I agree. I mean, to that concept, the the importance of letting your kiddo have downtime. And I just recorded a podcast yes. not too long ago. And, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, too, is that while I hate the fact that my son with autism loves screen time and you do your best as a parent to avoid unnecessary or prolonged screen time, the reality of it for us is, is that that is where he can be himself. It's his natural interest. He does have friends that he engages with just in an online um, that yeah. platform. And for him, that's his escape where he can be himself. Yes, um, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> when I was recording my podcast um, just the other day, you know, my ex-husband and I have a difference of opinion when it comes to appropriate Christmas gifts, because he really doesn't want to spend money on gifts that are related to technology, because he thinks that we need to be moving and transitioning away from that. And I just have a different philosophy on that. Because again, what you're to what you're saying is, is that he needs that opportunity to recharge yes. his and be able to live in the world and be in the world where he's comfortable and he can be himself. And that's yeah. whether I like it or not, that's where it is. Yes, absolutely right. Um, and that's not for all autistics, but for a good portion, 
that is the comfort zone. There are no demands from anyone socially. They can lock into this thing of interest. Um, they can control it. it. There's a pause button. There's a whatever. There are so many things about it that just makes sense. That is the recharge. Uh, it might not be the only recharge, but it's probably going to be the go-to. And, you know, letting the child or student have some control over in some area. And if that's their comfort, then I, I think that makes a lot of sense. They need to um, be making some decisions on their own to get out of that learned helplessness. And that's an easy one. They, they gravitate toward what it is that's a comfort. And that's not always possible, say, in school. And so they'll have to be other ways to comfort and have downtime. But I agree wholeheartedly. I have a really, really hard time with the concept of video game addiction. I think that people that don't really understand this population putting their lens on uh, a situation that they don't understand. So that's a whole nother area. I agree with you. Once there have been huge demands, again, it can be environmentally, it can be socially, it could be trying to do something that's difficult. That is one way to protect against the anxiety and the burnout is that downtime. Now that's a reactive strategy that's after the thing has happened. And so super important because you can't control every situation or environment. Super important. I can't say how important downtime is. On the other hand, I think we can do a whole lot more on the proactive side. I think that's the area that really needs the most attention and work. As a parent, I'm looking at in terms of that proactive side of it that's going to help them so that they build up, um, I hate to say tolerance, but maybe have just a more grit. Yeah, grit, I guess. So, what would you, yeah. what's the proactive end of this look like? Um, well, <laughs> and here's where I'm going to deviate from most people that you talk to. This may be a little bit of a, hard pill to swallow. Um, but I think if we can truly grab a hold of strengths based way of teaching and working, then they don't have to be a square peg in a round hole. It's exactly like you say, you chip away the round hole at the square peg, be a square peg. And then they don't need to mask and then they don't need to have all of those corrections. It's environmental changes and helping schools understand that children do have differences. I don't care who you are or what diagnosis you do and don't have. Children have differences and to expect children to be widgets is not realistic. And so there are going to be children in the classroom that have different needs. That's just how it is. Um, adults in a room would have different needs. It's just that's a, a mindset that needs shifting, in my opinion. I think, again, we've kind of talked about this in the past. The, the way to do that is universal design. So you design 
environments or you design projects or you design assignments so that there is variation within it. And that's the norm. And so no one is feeling outside the box. And so there's no reason to bully at that point, right? Because we're all, that's the expectation. I have done a podcast in in the past, and I have still talked about this through several other podcasts, is that I have taken the approach of you know, self-esteem is really important to me with all of my children. I want them to have a strong self-esteem, be comfortable who they are, make no apologies for who they are because everyone is unique and that isn't wrong or less. And so we have always- And they're they're humans first. I mean, they're they're people. (laughs) They deserve the same respect and dignity and care and understanding as they're humans. They're not autistic only. Yes. However, mm-hmm. with that being said, I've never, I, we've always been very open about the fact that Kayla has autism to the point of oversharing. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why we are oversharing, there are some parents that feel like, no, I don't want my child to find my labels. Well, the problem that I've always seen with that is, is that labels are what destroyed me and my self-esteem as a child is, is that labels were always um, considered to be bad. And so it's one of those things where you don't talk about them. You hope you mask, you hope nobody sees it. Right. I've taken that other, that other side of it where we are very, we're oversharers. Caleb has high functioning autism. This is what it is. Do you have any questions? This is how Caleb's brain works. It's a PS4 versus the Xbox. Because (laughs) my thought is I want all of the kids to know that, you know, brains for everybody's brain works differently. Everybody has different needs. And if we're open to that, it it automatically takes away the, the stigma of, well, why is he so different? Like he just is weird right. and having that whole imagination and why he's, he's, um, you know, presenting different than themselves versus just having a very open place of where he is and be comfortable asking questions. And he's just, you know, like, Caleb, what would you like your friends to know? And, um, you know, do they have any questions about kind of, you know, how you see the world? And it's always been very positive and I don't regret it where I have seen differences where I, I do have some families that have been very, very, from the get-go, they do not share the child's diagnosis. In some cases, the kiddos, the students don't even know what their diagnosis is. They have kept it even a secret from the kids. And I have never seen that scenario work out in a positive way because eventually when they stumble upon something that really resonates with them and it's somehow tied with a learning disability or autism or, um, you know, whatever the case may be, what comes about is, is that you kept this a secret from me, or you're ashamed of this and you didn't want me to know or anybody else to know because yeah. you think it's bad. And so that's where I have always just been, I'm an overshare, ask me all the questions. But with that right. too, I also hold people accountable for, you know, why is it that you feel like you can treat my child, um, you know, this way? Or why are you so resistant to the fact that he needs things presented in a different way? And that's that advocacy. I'm going to hold people more accountable for why is it that you're so rigid in your belief system that this is the way it must be, or this is how things must function. And it's tiring as a parent 
because it, it is job is never done. Um, being an advocate, and this is where I was going to even make sure that we talk about one of the biggest things that we can do in order to help our kiddos with this is be strong advocates for the fact that systems need to change, perspectives need to change yes. universally. Yes. Whether that's yes. from an employment perspective, a school perspective, even just friendships and how we accept and play with the neighborhood kids and include right. them in our activities. Societal change related to neurodiversity is step number one, and it is exhausting as a parent, yes. constantly advocating, <laughs> but we have yeah. to keep doing it, parents. We have to band together and keep doing it because otherwise what's going to happen is there's going to be more round holes that we're going to be constantly having to chip away at, as opposed right. to just universally, all of these holes are now the size that all of us can fit regardless of whether we're triangles, squares, or circles. Exactly. Um, yeah. There's my plat. There's my soapbox moment because yeah, I'm with you. that I have been preaching for a long time is I am always going to be an overshare and I'm never going to apologize for the fact that my son has autism and therefore his brain works differently. It's not wrong. It's not broken. It's that it's a different processing system and we all need to work around that and be inclusive. And that's just a fact. And, you know, if you are a parent that has the mindset that you don't, you hate labels and you don't want your child defined by labels. I think that is fine. I just would really encourage you to work with providers and professionals to figure out and make sure you're doing it in a way that you're not part of the problem and making your child feel that they have to mask. You know what yeah. I mean? And I guess yeah. that's one of my biggest things too, is, is that I, I support you in your desire to try and make that work. Just make sure that you are getting people in your team that are helping you do it in a way that's going to build them up and not yeah. make them feel as though they have to mask or they have to conform to um, a system or process or society norms that don't feel good to them. So reach right. out and find professionals. So I don't know if you agree with that, Becky, but I just feel very strongly that we, you know, that's step number one. If parents need to love and support and, and really, you know, celebrate their kiddos. And right. um, so let's figure out a way that we can do that in a positive way. Right, right. Yeah, I, I am completely on the same page, which is probably not unusual since you and I talk regularly and we know that we think a lot alike. Um, but I have been using the term autistic instead of um, son with autism for 10 or 12 years and it really 10 or 12 years ago it would really make people squirm and make them very uncomfortable and I also overshare because I do think the more that people in the community realize that Autism is not rare by any means. Um, They know people that are autistic, whether or not they know that they know people that are autistic, the more it's, it's not seen as a special need. It is just a piece of the community. And that's, that's, we're just all people first and um, that acceptance. And I I do think the more that we can share and put it out there, the more people won't go, Oh, but they'll just shrug and say, yeah, okay. (laughs) Because it's just, you know, I have brown hair and I'm not neurotypical. I mean, it, it just, it's, 
it just doesn't need to be a thing. And the more that it's not a thing, the more well, it's a, it's a diversity. It's something like you say to celebrate. It's a different way of thinking. And I try as I might to come up with the amazing problem solving plans that my students come up with when we're working on something, I won't get there because my brain does not work the same. It's neurodiverse, but it's not the same neurodiverse as my students. And so I, I have that amazing brain. There are many times that I did. It is a difference. It is a diversity. It has strengths many strengths along with many differences. And, you know, if, if the person in the store needs to flap for excitement or rock because of discomfort for a few minutes, so be it, you know, it's not, it's not hurting anyone. It's helping them be themselves. And we just need to get used to some, some differences. And I don't know why it's so hard for us, but letting people be themselves is the best way to get away from masks and autistic burnout and learned helplessness and the many things that are the result of us trying to mold people into who they're not. Oh, so I always refer to my son as, you know, my son with autism. I don't refer to him as uh, my autistic son. And in the end part, I, I'll probably end up making that transition. Once he makes that transition early on, he would cry because he thought people were calling him autistic as a name instead of Caleb. No, my name is Caleb. Uh, oh, wow. He didn't understand yeah. the name. He didn't understand that, you know, people would say, oh, he's autistic. Like he's Caleb. He's autistic. So he hated it. Um, now he's not so much, um, he doesn't identify himself as the, you know, like, oh, like I walk into a classroom, my name is Caleb and I have autism. He doesn't. It's just, uh, it usually comes up when there's a first problem and then he'll make it aware of the fact that, oh, obviously nobody told you I have autism. Um, so I think when he starts making that transition and he's comfortable referring to himself as an autistic and he understands that that, that's, we, we know that's not your name, Caleb. It's just, it's like a turn, um, like, you know, yeah. is a dachshund and, um, you know, right. I, I think it will, you know, m- mold into our day-to-day world and it's just, it's personal preference and where you feel comfortable and you're absolutely right. One of the hardest things for me, Becky, when you talk about like the learned helplessness is that I have really, since sixth grade, I've really tried to step back and allow Caleb to fall flat on his face because it's hard. It is yeah. so hard because it's yeah. kind of like, oh, I could streamline, you know, because I'm a bit of a control freak, you know, type A personality, gotta mm-hmm. keep, you know, because that's, you know, organization and just, you know, having control of all the operating parts just helps me manage my life a little bit better. It's a coping strategy. But <laughs> with Caleb, it's been so hard. You know, I made that cognizant decision that in the sixth grade, hey, I got to start letting him troubleshoot this and just fall on his face because he has to start figuring out some of these things so that he doesn't have that learned helplessness and oh yeah, good to see the result of his actions yeah exactly yes. and i'm telling you it's one of the most difficult things as a oh. as a type a personality person it is the most difficult thing to watch because it takes a thousand yeah. times longer than what it needs to be. yeah <laughs> and um you know but i just have to let it and then we have to, we talk about it wow so did that work the way that you wanted and he was like, oh, no. But then there are times where, like yesterday, 
Um, I can see his his school emails because I have them show up on my phone just so I can just double check to make sure he's not missing anything. I don't tell him about mm-hmm. it. I just mm-hmm. monitor it. So I kind of am aware of what's going on. And I was so impressed yesterday with him taking the initiative to get more information about something. And he was, nice. turns out he was more on top of it than the teacher. And I was just like, sweet. There it is. There it is. It's coming along, but boy, sometimes I'm telling you what, I just have to cringe. I call it cringe and bear it. I just have to cringe and bear it. Yeah. Ask him, so how'd it go? And just knowing that it was not good. Right, right, right. Well, and it's especially hard, I think, when we have autistic kids that we get in that protective role early on. And it is harder than anything to back away and expose them to the world and let them fail like you say in a in a you know protected structured way um it still is extreme it's the hardest thing I think you'll face as a parent it's just it's it's uh yeah I'm sorry yeah it sucks I know it sucks and um it's just you know and the thing is the boys do it to a certain degree too um, but you know with the boys they pretty much my my teenage boys they fail but they fail fast it's a fast failure and then you're just kind of like wow okay so how'd that go with Caleb it's like it's kind of a slow motion train wreck where you're just kind of jolly like Like, this is gonna take all the play out but like okay yeah Let's, yeah. Yeah. But when you're in it for the long term, that's exactly what you want to do. That that's that's how they're gonna learn. You're exactly right. Yeah. Well, well praise for you. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. You know, there are sometimes where there are days where I'm just kind of like, okay, my my rational side of my brain is like, we have to let this play out. But today, I don't have the capacity yeah. to allow that. Oh, to because yeah. all of these other with the other three kids and just like yes. what it is it's kind of like okay so I'm gonna have to intervene on this particular instance because for sure I know this is what's gonna happen and so we're gonna have to but you know I do try not to mean mm-hmm. and also too like there are times where I will send a message to the teacher just saying hey I know this is happening, but he's got to figure out that this isn't the, you know, a viable option. You know, so we just have to let this play out and be supportive and try and redirect him. But, you know, again, mm-hmm. one of his IEP goals is advocacy. And if we step in or we automatically quash the situation, like right. and we're not helping him learn and troubleshoot <laughs> things. So I exactly. think, you, you know, behind the scenes, just say, hey, let's let this play out a little bit longer before we like, you know. And I don't mean with bullying or things like that. I'm talking just executive function management, if you will. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But um, anyway, so um, did we cover everything? Is there anything else that we want to touch on before we wrap up this? There's so many things that you touched on that I feel like we could go off and then talk about this and even sub podcast, which is what we do every single time. Yes. Yes. That's a great thing to talk about later on. Um, but did we kind of get to the nuts and bolts of that masking from bullying and how the effects of constantly having to live up to standards and expectations that are not natural for our kiddos? 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm absolutely. Um, I mostly wanted to put out there the typical progression that I see play out over and over just to increase awareness and then talk about, um, like you said, the proactive side to engineer situations and environments that let our children be who they naturally are without correction, without um, incident. And then after a long day, or if something has gone sideways early on, allowing that resilience by having them be in their comfort zone and having that downtime and helping them regroup and get away from that anxiety before it just continues to build. Um, so yeah, I think that's, I think that's everything we're going to cover today, but like you say, there's, there's always more. Yeah. So stay tuned. If you are a regular listener, stay tuned because we will have Becky from a life of my own back on because we want to definitely talk on Oh, we have a whole long list. I, I definitely want to be talking about moving past resistance. And there's obviously some things about employment that we still want to cover. So um, thank you everyone for joining us for this episode of Isaac's Autism Wild. And be sure Thanks to come so back because we're going to have Becky on again so that we can talk about um, more topics related to executive function and um, some of the, you know, and again, you're still going to see this theme coming up through other podcasts because it does um, manifest then in different areas that we're going to talk about in further podcasting. So thanks, Becky. We'll see you next Thank time. you. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.